0: you know and C-Nation also C nation
1: can kiss my hairy yellow ass <laughs> <laughs> Radio Drone. Welcome to another Thursday night. I'm Josh Hadley, and I don't know why I'm stoic, but Peter is here. Hello. He doesn't have much to say. As well as Cecil, not Tom
0: Servo, Robot. Ain't Robots Hammond.
1: You know what? Just for that, do the Adam (laughs) and Eve
0: promo. It was on the Robocop cover with the Dazzler. (laughs) Do the Adam
1: and Eve promo. It's
0: Robocop. I'm Robots Hammond. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Which actually translates to a robot's revenge, thanks to Google Translate. But do the Adam and oh. Eve promo.
0: Oh, um, hey, if you go to Adamandeve.com and use the promo code Drome, uh, didn't they change it? It's now like more DVDs and stuff.
1: You're supposed to be doing this, and then you're asking for my help.
0: It's ten DVDs. Well, no,
1: no, no, it's ten free gifts, six 10 DVDs, free a gift. free right. mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free no Peter shipping.
0: Ditto. <laughs> All if you use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com for exactly. your Robot Gangbang. For you, <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're we're going to kind of be doing a follow up to last week where we talked about how television has changed and we've got a, we got a special guest star which will be Joe Dante is back. Although, technically, I'm cheating because part of the interview I did at the same time, I just broke it in two because we changed topics. But technically, Joe Dante is back, and he'll be talking about some of his TV work and the difference between working in television and working in movies. Have you guys noticed that there seems to be more movie directors moving into television now? I don't want to say than ever before, and I'll go into that in a little bit. But have you noticed how TV has sort of lost the stigma that it used to have when it came to movies? Because if you guys remember that famous Mel Gibson quote from, from the early 2000s where he was asked why being asked to be on like CSIs and stuff and he turned it down. And he said, I quote, TV is what you do when you're not good enough for movies that has kind of changed, hasn't it? That whole attitude of TV. I don't, I I don't do TV. I I think it, I think it was Tom Cruise that had, that had a quote, something along the lines of, I'm a movie actor. I don't do TV. Has the stigma gone away?
2: Of course it has. TV is so much more, it's so much more larger than life than it used to be. It's, it's, it's almost even more cinematic than even movies are lately. Like there's a lot of TV that actually surpasses film. Like, if you ask a lot of people, Breaking Bad is better than most uh, movies. A True Detective is better than most movies. So for an actor to say, "Well, I'm not a TV guy. I'm bigger than that. It, movies are are the biggest." Well, not nowadays. Not necessarily. There's probably a, a much larger audience for TV now than than even for film, and uh, it, it's especially something that's prominent nowadays. Oh, big time. I mean, there was a time where, you know, when when Mel Gibson and all that said
0: that and it was true. It was TV was where a lot of movie actors went when their, you know, quote unquote star began to fade. They would end up on television. And now uh, you get a lot of actors that are transitioning between the two, you know, be doing movies. And then in their off time, they'll do like cameos on TV or you have some of them that will direct episodes of television shows. Strangely enough, uh, it seems like there's a lot more creative freedom on the cable shows lately. Uh, They're they're not bound by a lot of the same restrictions that you're getting with movies because you're getting people that are going to be like, okay, well, I'm going to direct this episode of the show or I'm going to work on this show and they're going to make... It a lot more edgy where if you were to take a show like Breaking Bad or like The Walking Dead and if they were to make that into a movie, it probably would end up being Mm PG-13 and it would just be cut to shreds and it wouldn't be as riveting or as well constructed as the TV show is.
1: To a degree, you get the same thing with TV movies. Joe Dante, I'll talk about this a a little bit more in a little bit. Cecil didn't get a chance to watch this, but Peter, could you have ever seen the 1997 TV movie from HBO, The Second Civil War? Would that have ever worked as a theatrical film? Or did that, I think, arguably more relevant today movie than it was in 1997, would that have ever played in theaters and worked, do you think?
2: Oh hell no, I don't think so. That that's definitely something that would probably have been easier to release uh for TV, but more strictly something that just works in in TV and it's it's uh just talking about it on its own, it's it's a brilliant movie, not just as a t- TV movie, but I feel like it easily could have worked theatric- theatrically like it's awesome. The Second Civil
1: War is essentially it's essentially trying to do what Network did for broadcast TV for mm-hmm. cable news. I mean, th- this thing was, a like I said, 1997, a biting satire of cable news that is far more relevant in 2015 than it was in 1997,
2: isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. It doesn't feel like... Uh, well, it does feel like... It's a little uh, bit
1: dated since everything's analog, yeah. but that's about the only thing that dates that movie.
2: Yeah, as, as far as the way the, the media is depicted, the way the presidency is depicted, like everything that you're seeing in that TV movie is very relevant to to what's going on in in TV and in politics today. It's it's a fucking brilliant little TV movie. I love it.
1: Cecil, you said that mo- that TV was a place that people went when their career started to wind down. I disagree with that because there is a th- shockingly large number of movie directors that did tv after they did movies such as Mm -hmm. abel ferrara rob cohen and paul michael glazer doing miami vice episodes David Cronenberg did a Friday the 13th the series. Actor David Morse who, he did, a, he directed a Friday the 13th the series episode. George Romero directed Tales from the Dark Side. Tommy Lee Wallace directed Max Headroom. Francis DeLea directed Max Headroom and War of the Worlds the series. David Lynch did episodes of Twin Peaks. William Friedkin and Wes Craven both did Twilight Zone episodes, as well as Joe Dante. Rennie Harlan did numerous Burn Notice episodes. James Cameron did the two series finale of Dark Angel. Tony Scott directed numerous episodes of The Hunger, Simon West did Keen Eddie. Tarantino did a CSI and an ER. Paul Bartel, Joe Dante, Bob Clark, Clint Eastwood, Peter Himes, (laughs) Burt Reynolds, Danny DeVito, Mick Garris, Tom Holland, Irvin Kirshner, Martin Scorsese, Robert Zemeckis, Brad Bird, Nick Castle, and Toby Hooper, all directed episodes of Amazing Stories. Tales from the Crypt had directors like Russell Mulchey, Robert Zemeckis, Richard Donner, Tom Holland, Walter Hill, Stephen Hopkins, Kevin Yager, John Harrison, William Malone, Fred Decker, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jack Shoulder, Manny Cotto, Stephen D'Souza, Michael J. Fox, Toby Hooper, John Frankenheimer, William Friedkin, Tom Hanks, Robert Longo, Joel Silver, Kyle McLaughlin, Gregory Gregory Wyden, Mick Harris, Bob Hoskins, DJ Caruso did The Shield, Toby Hooper did Freddy's Nightmares, The Others, Nowhere Man, and Perversions of Science. All of these things were after their movie careers were still active. So, I don't know if I agree with, with the statement that you kind of go to TV when your when your movie career is dying down.
0: Two things. First of all, I was talking more I was talking more of people that were in front of the camera. So you had actors who, uh, when their when their star was fading, they went to television because more people will pay attention, you know, to somebody who's in front of the camera. Because I'd be willing to bet the the fact that you went through that whole list and there were probably a lot of people that had no idea that these you know, directors that were fairly large directors you know, worked in television. And the other one, you're missing a very, very, very big one. Tom,
1: that's right. Tom Cruise directed an episode of Fallen Angels on Showtime.
0: Hmm. I was going to say Kevin Smith did a, a trilogy of Degrassi. That's he also, right. He That's... also
2: directed the pilot of Reaper. <laughs> That's actually also, where yes, um, Degrassi is actually where I got introduced to uh, Jay and Silent Bob. Like, I never watched Degrassi, but that was the first place I ever actually saw those characters. Just... Okay,
1: you're straight up lying right now because you're Canadian. No, I'm
2: not. You, you, you guys, you guys
1: not. were made up for Degrassi. Degrassi is your show. Yeah, Degrassi's yeah, I don't like been
2: that. on for like 40 years or something. Yeah.
1: <laughs> damn Canadian high school melodrama.
2: Really a lot of credit going to Kevin Smith there for introducing me to his movies through me, you know inadvertently through me just kinda flipping channels one day when a movie director goes to TV
1: it's usually a 50-50 split between how this works and how it doesn't of whether they get to actually direct the episode or if they're just the one calling the shot for instance on something and Joe Dante will talk about this more on like CSI and Hawaii 50 when you come into the series later their style is already laid down you know you can't deviate from their style you have to do x x x and x to fit into one of their episodes i remember tarantino said the same thing about the csi he did that it was very structured and he didn't have as much leeway as you would think he would and so there is that fallback but then especially when it comes to anthology series when you don't have a specific style you can kind of go anywhere you want with that. You know, like Tales from the Crypt, perversions of science, amazing stories, Tales from the Dark Side. You can go, you can pretty much do what you want. episode of Twilight Zone, called Nightcrawlers, is one of the most intense 17 minutes I have ever seen on TV. It, it was so good, and so William Friedkin. Because normally, even in the 8, in 1985, you did not go 17 minutes on TV without a commercial executive producer Philip DeGauer went to the president of CBS and said, putting a commercial in the middle of this destroys the tension. They showed it to the president of CBS, and he agreed. This will not have a commercial break in the middle of it because it cannot work with a break. That kind of intensity, like the, on Twilight Zone, as, as Joe Dante says, they had so many great ideas, they just had no money. You know, like uh, Wes Craven did two Twilight Zone episodes. The first one starred this unknown actor named Bruce Willis and was written by Harlan freaking Ellison. <laughs> and the second one was a comedy episode starring this unknown actor named Morgan Freeman.
0: I would think they would probably have more flexibility with an anthology because they're, they kind of can do what they like. I mean, I realize that's not always the case. There's going to be people that uh, have certain expectations TV shows and whatnot, uh, you you do have styles, and if you have somebody who is known for doing something a little bit out of the ordinary, you're you're gonna be, you know you're gonna have them. Oh well, we want you to direct this episode, but we don't want you to do a lot of your signature things with it. If you're gonna tell the director that, then why don't you just get like a hired gun? Like why are you yeah. gonna get a named director to do this and then tell them to not do something that's in their style?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Rob Zombie is on record talking about how working on CSI Miami was the worst three weeks he's ever had in his <laughs> professional career. That's a quote. The worst three weeks I've ever had in my professional career was was doing CSI Miami. It was one of those things where he said he regretted it at the day he stepped onto the set because he oh, had, wow. outside of casting, outside of bringing in the guest cast, he had no creative freedom whatsoever. Joe Dante mm-hmm. The the vibe I got from him is kind of the same thing. You know, you are here to do our style and you can bring in some of your friends as actors, but that's it.
0: Did he bring in Sherry Moon Zombie?
1: Rob Zombies? he (laughs) He had, he had, no, he had Sherry Moon, he had... He had William Forsythe, he had Malcolm McDowell, Sherry Moon Zombie, Michael Madsen. You know, they all guest starred. And like Joe Dante's, he's got Bruce Dern and Dick Miller and Robert Picardo in roles. And so you can kind of tell that, yes, this director did this thing because their cast of regulars is here. I, I absolutely agree with you. Why bring in a director with a signature style if they can't use it? Whereas, like, Rennie Harlan, I'm not a big fan of a lot of his movies. I don't think he's a bad director. But, like, his style already fit Burn Notice. So even though you couldn't tell... This is the weird part, and this is not an insult to Rennie Harlan. Since his style was already close to Burn Notice, he was a perfect fit for Burn Notice because you couldn't tell that Rennie Harlan directed it, but it didn't feel wrong. Does that make sense?
2: It does, because, yeah, he has a very, like sort of saturated, crisp MTV sort of style to his work, which is very much kind of aesthetic that Burn Notice has. So it definitely fit.
1: You know, and then you get other ones where you just kind of go, that that does make sense. Like James Cameron, he executive produced and wrote numerous episodes of Dark Angel. It just made sense for him to direct the two-hour series finale, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, or like uh, it was just announced today, Sam Raimi will be directing the pilot of Ash vs. Evil Dead. That hmm. makes total sense, and I hope I hope they allow Sam Raimi to have his style, which will mean yeah. POV shots of every object on set,
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> or like a, go back to David Cronenberg doing Friday the Thirteenth the series. Even if you missed the credits, you watch that and it feels like a David Cronenberg episode. Friday the Thirteenth hmm. was one of those series that let directors experiment with style. You have like tragic cases like Hal Ashby and Beverly Hills Bunch. Beverly Hill's Bunce was a spin-off of Hill Street Blues and was actually quite a good show that had three different pilots shot for it now at this point Hal, Hal Ashby had blown his whole career drugs he'd become so unreliable as a drunk and a drug addict that he was in in his own words completely unhirable oh, shit. He, he, he got he got one last chance to direct the pilot for Beverly Hills Bunce and he directed the version that aired but again in his own words, it was unrecognizable what they did it to what they did to it in the editing room. Mm. So and then he died a couple of weeks later. So you have certain actor, certain directors who finish out their career on TV as sort of a punishment. And I don't think that's the way it should be seen. But that seems to be the Mel Gibson sort of attitude, isn't it? That when yeah. you're not good enough for movies, you do TV.
2: Well, I think it really depends on the show itself when it comes to a director being brought on to bring their style with it. Like, obviously, with a show like CSI, it kind of... I mean, yeah, when you get another director to do it, they're going to be given the freedom of bringing in some of their regular actors. But no, you're not really going to see their style going into the episode, whereas it does totally work better with more of an anthology show. Like um, if you take Tales from the Crypt, for example, if you watch the Walter Hill episode, that totally feels like Walter Hill. That's a total Walter Hill style of of framing and lighting and it's a great episode. That's the one where Lance Henriksen and I forget the other dude's name. I think it was in Yeah, that's a oh, that's one of my favorite episodes. And that's a and you can totally tell that it's Walter Hill. Same with other Tales from the Crypt episodes, like ones that are directed by you know uh, uh, Zemeckis. And other directors that have uh, worked on the show. That's what's great about that show is that every episode is meant to be different. So it is a perfect showcasing of getting so many different directors on it because you're always going to see this this different style. And that's why it works so much better for an anthology show And, and not so much for a show with a set structure like, you know, like CSI, like that doesn't make uh, it just it honestly makes more sense to just stick with whoever you're working with and keep the show going in the structure that it's already on, because it's not really going to change if you introduce another director, even if he is a director with a really out there kind of style they they're, they're going to confine him to what the show is already doing. I
1: think in those cases, what they're doing is they want the name. They don't want the person. They want to be able to advertise directed by Joe Dante, directed by Mm -hmm. Rob Zombie, directed by James Cameron. They don't want their style. They want their name.
0: They figure, oh, you know, we can we can sell this through using this person's name. We don't want to make it too different because that might upset people that watch it normally. So, you know,
1: the three of us are going to take a break. And you guys listen to Joe Dante talk about some of his adventures in television. What I wanted to talk to you about
3: was what I consider some of your more underappreciated works—the your TV work. Because you know everyone talks about the Burbs and Gremlins and whatnot, and I think they should. But I don't think anyone remembers that you did Police Squad and Twilight Zone and, and what well, I. But you know,
4: those things aren't those things aren't in the same kind of circulation as the theatrical movies. You know because now the film video and DVD and all that sort of thing. I mean initially each of those TV things was on for you know one night. Uh, some of them were never rerun. And uh, so they're not, they're not exactly embedded in the public consciousness. I mean, you have to really sort of dig into the, the library to uh, to find some of those things. I mean, like the Second Civil War, I don't think was ever rebroadcast. I think it was broadcast at one time in 1997. And I, as far, even though we did a syndication version where, you know, everybody came in and re all the profanity, I don't think it ever saw the light of day anywhere.
1: I
3: I don't know if that ever got a VHS, but uh, a friend of mine was working for a newspaper, and I got a screener copy of it. That's how I saw Second Civil War, and I fell in Mm. love with it back in 1997.
4: Since then, it's become uh, pretty well-known overseas. Uh, It's ranked pretty highly among my stuff uh, with critics when I talk to them from overseas. But, um, But oddly enough, in America, it just doesn't really have much of a presence at all because HBO's stuff... Uh, they don't rerun their old stuff on HBO. Um, they don't seem there's not much of a syndication market anymore. So you know local stations don't run old movies, and if they did, they probably wouldn't run old TV movies. Uh, and so unless you know where to go to find it, you know there is a DVD out. Um, it's uh, it's a pretty obscure movie.
3: But my my biggest disappointment with the DVD was I really wanted a commentary track. I'm not kidding when I say I fell in love with the Second Civil War. I wanted to know more about it.
4: Well, I, you know, a, a commentary track would be you know, kind of interesting because there was a lot of behind the scenes problems. But, um, you know, it, you just, despite the, the fact that it's a very, probably the best cast I ever worked with, it's not, uh, it's, and, and that, the, that the movie itself, you know, every time, every time I go to a festival and they run it, it seems more current than it did, you know, in 1997. It seems, it, it's even, over the years, even more of it seems to have come true uh than we thought but um it's just one of those movies that uh you know it isn't on the in the zeitgeist and uh, there's not much you can do about that because you can't you can't run them theatrically in america you know because the deals uh that were made uh with the actors precluded um theatrical dates in america and the, the and that picture was released overseas as a theatrical movie and that's probably one of the reasons that it has more notoriety there
3: Is that the same thing with Warlord Battle for the Galaxy or, as the Europeans got it, the Osiris Chronicles?
4: No, the Osiris Chronicles is a slightly different situation because, you know, HBO was actually making a series of politically themed movies uh, in in the late 90s. And um, this is part of their library of stuff. But uh, Warlord is, is, is a one-off. It was a, it was a pilot for a series that was made for CBS and when CBS was trying to change its image uh, from the old fogey network to the hip and happening network. And um, so they they bankrolled this thing and, you know, we worked on it. And while we were working on it, they rolled out of their new their new look for CBS, which was a show called Central Park East or Central Park West or something with Raquel Wolf. And it was a huge disaster, and they got cold feet, and they said they wanted to become the Cornpone Network again. So they didn't want to pick up the show. Uh, But conversely, they didn't want anybody else to pick it up. So they waited until the very end of pilot season to announce that they weren't going to run it so that everybody else's slots were filled. And, you know, there were a couple of people who were interested, but there was no place No place to go with it, and so it sat on the shelf for I don't know a year or two, and then um, they did a little fiddling with the ending and released it as a uh, as a one-off on um, their uh, syndication channel that they co-owned or whatever, and it played I think once, and the only place that I know of that you can get it is uh, I think there's a German DVD or a German VHS, Uh, but it's again another movie that's just not. Not uh, able to be seen.
3: I, I recorded it off of UPN back in '98, and I, I'll well, admit was, I didn't. That was didn't the like it.
4: only time it ever ran.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I admit I didn't like it then, but I watched it about a year ago, and I loved it.
4: Well, it was the problem with it is it's all exposition because it's a pilot, and uh, you know it takes the entire two hours to introduce all the characters and introduce the conflict. And then at the end of the story, they go, okay, now we're going to go and do stuff. And then it's over. It's like, well, what kind of story is that? You know, you're supposed to go on to more episodes. And we had like five or six or seven ready to go, uh, you know, uh, continuing the adventure. But uh, we never got to use any of them. And so they just said, well, they they, they they changed the ending a little bit to take the onus off the kidnapped girl because that was how the original piece ended was with, with her. And they, they said, well, let's let's try to downplay that and just make it look like they're going to go off and have adventures. And it was you know, very unsatisfying.
3: Well, let's go back to the beginning of your TV career. How did you go from Rock and Roll High School, Piranha, and The Howling to... At the time, it wasn't the classic, but to Police Squad. How, I, well, was my the transition from movies yeah. to TV.
4: My friend John Davison had produced Airplane uh, with the Zucker's, who I knew uh, already because they had worked on Kentucky Fried Movie, which uh, was made by John Landis, who's also a friend of mine. When they finally got there, they were wallowing in success. I mean, the, uh, Airplane was such an astonishing success for so little money that they really were on, a, on, on the top of the heap in Hollywood. And when they got a chance to do a TV series, they said they wanted to do a parody of what, what you, a show called M Squad that Lee Marvin did in the 50s. And, and their unique take on, on parody was that they would simply take real situations from old episodes and they would exaggerate them. Uh, so that it's like the scene in an Airplane when when he can't fly the plane and he he pan, the camera pans the cockpit and then so it keeps panning and keeps panning and keeps panning and it's like a cartoon. I mean, there's no way a cockpit could be that big. And that's actually uh, an iteration of a shot that's in the movie Zero Hour, which they copied for Airplane, and thus setting up their their uh, their Earth. Uh, and, and there's a shot that does seem to go on forever in that picture. And so they said, well, okay, we'll just, we'll just imitate it. So all the, go, all the gags in Airplane, like stopping smoking and all that stuff, are all from Zero Hour. And they sort of hit a pay dirt, and they figured that TV was perfect for their brand of, of satire. And so you know, they did this series, which um, you know, they got Leslie Nielsen, who is now a comedian, uh, even though he had been a serious actor, uh, playing you know, very straight parts. And playing them very straightly uh, in Airplane, of course, with funny lines, made him a comedian. So he was tapped to lead this thing. And it, the format was very much like uh, a 60s cop show. And every effort was made to make it look like a 60s cop show without actually saying it was the 60s. I mean, all the, cam- all the cameras that people used were like old-fashioned. There was a quaintness to the, to the whole production of the design of the show. And it backfired because when there was no laugh track. And they insisted they didn't run the laugh track. And so when people happened upon the show, they're clicking channels, and they see Leslie Nielsen in what looks like an old 60s cop show, and they watch it for a couple of seconds, and they, they clicked away. They figured, they figured it was a rerun. And so nobody really got the show when it was first on, and ABC was panicked. They didn't know what to do, and they kept bumping it, and uh, they couldn't find it. And they only, they only made six of them, and the, and the, the last one which I directed I don't think was on until six months after the first one because they had just mooned it around and essentially forgot about it. And the, the irony, of course, was that when they decided to turn it into a movie, the movie was a huge hit. And they made a whole series of Naked Gun movies, none of which I don't think is as funny as the original series because the series was in this great position where they could make fun of, of uh, you know, TV bromides and uh, freeze frames and act breaks and commercials and all that stuff. I mean, it was just a goldmine. And uh, it, it was a very, very, very funny show. But you had to watch it with a group of people because if you didn't, then there would be no laughs in it.
3: I, I remember my favorite moment. And you got to remember, I was born in 75. So... I, I did watch these first run. My, my dad was a big Leslie Nielsen fan from his westerns and night gallery mm-hmm. appearances and that. So my dad did watch this. Was Captain Kirk, and then he's killed right away. I was like, <laughs> a, as a kid, I didn't quite get it, but it was still funny. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah, no. It was it was a very funny show, and and they I, they were devastated when it didn't 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 work. Um, because but but you know they had already made. Um, I think that they went on, either went on to make or had already made Top Secret, which was the follow-up to Airplane, uh, which is a movie which has great gags in it, some of them even better than the gags in Airplane, but has no plot. And as a result, it's it's not a satisfying experience. It's just it's like it's literally like like changing channels while watching a movie, and uh, and that didn't work. And so they got kind of demoralized uh, after this. But when they when they found the the, the Naked Gun formula, uh, it put them right back on
3: top again. Well, then the next TV thing you did was, I am absolutely in love with the 1985 Twilight Zone, and mm-hmm. you did the, the Shadow Man, which, and I, I say this with all sincerity, it feels like a Joe Dante-directed segment. It's got the kid angle. It feels very fun at the same time as being dark. How did you get involved with the new Twilight Zone?
4: Well, that was probably uh, a lucky break for me because – you you didn't get to choose your scripts. If they if they said if if they if you said you wanted to do an episode, they sent you the script. It wasn't like you picked this one or that one or the other one. And I was I had done an episode of Amazing Stories before that, which was the Spielberg uh, anthology series, which was uh, on NBC and was an extremely expensive, elaborately produced show with kind of minimal stories, uh, but way overproduced. And this was exactly the opposite. This was like so underproduced. They had no money on the Twilight Zone. Uh, at all, uh, but they did have stories. And um, when you watch those episodes today, uh, there's so much more content in them than there was in Amazing Stories, which were basically sort of one-line ideas tossed off that played out exactly the way that you thought they were going to play out. I mean, people used to say you could find more, hear more Amazing Stories online at the post office than you could see on Amazing Stories. Um, but Twilight Zone was, uh, you know, it just, it, just, it just had better material. Uh, but the challenge was that you had very little time and there was almost no money. So uh, you had to be resourceful. Uh, the, the shows were made very, very quickly. And at the time, the format was that it was an hour show with three or four different segments of varying lengths that would be um, you know, put together to make an hour. Uh, and when it went into the syndication, they decided to make it a half hour show. So they went back and re-edited a lot of those shows and uh, expanded some of them and shortened some of them. So it's, it's, it's very hard to find definitive versions of any of the Twilight Zones.
3: Again, my dad, being a huge fan, he recorded all of the Twilight Zones off of CBS, so I have all the mm. other CBS airings. And then just a couple of years ago, they released them all on DVD finally.
4: Right, and there's a, I think there's a, a Mega Twilight Zone set with you know all the different the the, the Serling version and the new version all in one box set.
3: But then you you went on to Erie, Indiana. Because yeah, you mentioned amazing stories. Erie, Indiana, again, I didn't like this at the time. I was in high school when Erie, Indiana came out. But then I watched it again in the late 90s on the, I don't know, Disney Channel or something like that. And I loved them. Well,
4: that, that, was, another, that was another case where the show uh, was not popular when it was new. And I had a terrible time slot opposite 60 minutes, which was a, a horrible thing to do. Um, it was a junior X-Files before there was X-Files. It just didn't catch on. So they made, I think, 17 or 18 of them. And um, and a couple of years later, they ran them on the Fox uh, network in the morning, on Saturday mornings. And suddenly it started to become a hit again because people who had never, kids who had never seen it before were watching it now every week. And uh, they said, oh my God, we've only got 18 of these things. We've got to get more. How are we going to have another We need another season. But two years had passed and they couldn't get the same kids because they were too old now. So they came up with this, they thought, ingenious idea of rebuilding the sets in Canada and hiring some other kids and using some footage from the old show uh, to construct an episode where the, Marshall and his friend become, other, they, they, st- they look like other kids <laughs> so that they can be played and their family can be played by other actors in this new version of Eerie Indiana. India. Yeah. Uh, the problem was that they did it for $1. ninety-eight, and, the, and it wasn't the same people who had done the original show. and It, it just was god-awful. Uh, and I think they made another 18 of those. Um, now, what happened to those? I have no idea. The original 18 is on uh, some disc somewhere, a little box set of, of of stuff. But the problem with all of these shows, like not just Erie, Indiana, but the Twilight Zone and all that stuff, was because this was the dawn of dig- of uh, video editing. And the shows were shot on film, but they were all edited on video. And, the- and negatives were never cut. So the the optimal quality of those shows is whatever was the state of the art at the time, which is now very primitive. And so when they go back to those original masters to try to bump them up and make them look good for Blu-ray and all that kind of stuff, it just can't be done. It just falls apart because the image just you know, won't take it. Um, and, and the negatives, of course, have long since been thrown away. So there's a whole era of television from the late 80s, early 90s, up to the 2000s, that is going to eventually be lost because nobody bothered to cut the negative. People just don't like to spend the extra money for something that's only going to pay off you know, 10 years down the line.
3: Well, and sometimes the studios seem to not care because I picked up Paramount's War of the Worlds TV series. My, uh, my 1988 off airs. Are higher quality and have better sound than the DVDs do, and I, I'm like, okay, you didn't even try then, you know?
4: Well, they probably didn't, you know. And it's a matter of what do they think is important to them, and how how much is it worth to them, basically, you know? What, how much money are we going to be able to stand to make from these things? That's why, you know, before Warner Archive started their on-demand thing, I was I was crowing around town saying, if I owned any black and white movies, I'd put them out now while the audience is still alive. <laughs>
3: You you got involved with the, I think, highly underrated Fox series, Night Visions, and you did two episodes of that. How did Night Visions come about?
4: Uh, Night Visions, there had been a pilot that was done, and uh, the producers approached me to do uh, the first two episodes of the actual show when they decided to start mass producing it. And it was the first time I'd, I'd worked in Canada, as, as, as I was soon to learn that the entire business was migrating away from Hollywood and up to Canada. Uh, and I did two episodes back to back. I did the one with Bridget Fonda and I did one with Brian Dennehy. The producers were less than supportive, let's just say. Um, they, were test, they were testing, They were they were audience testing all of these anthology episodes, which is just a terrible thing to do for an anthology show. You can't audience test them because it's it's only one episode. (laughs) It's not even even a make or break for your show. It's just an episode. So what are you going to spend money and go back and reshoot? And so they did spend money to go back and reshoot things that they then didn't use because of course it wasn't as good as the way it was originally. And so I never, uh, on those two, it's the only time that I can think of on television where I didn't get to do the post-production uh, on on the episodes, so I, I handed it in, and then once I handed it in, they were going to do what they wanted with it. Um, and in the case of the the Bridget Font episode, it actually turned out very well because she was really great in it. And even though it was a stupid story,
3: that was the one where uh, she was like hiding in the house, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, she's she's the she turns out that she's you know uh, it's not her house; she's just living there. But she was really brilliant and and great to work with, and it was the whole thing was a positive experience because of that. But but in the end. I don't think I ever saw that show for maybe ten years after I did it, and I and I don't think I've ever seen the Brand at anyone uh, because I know I knew for a fact what they were doing to it editorial, and I just didn't want to have to see it, so I, I didn't. Um, but also that show disappeared. Also, I mean, it, it, I think it may have been run on Chiller. Uh, on, on cable, but
3: uh, Sci- Sci-Fi Channel actually. I remember Sci-Fi ran the unaired episodes off after Fox canceled it. Because
4: what's interesting is that was the first show I did that was in uh, sixteen by nine. Um, they shot it three perf, which is you know instead of four Perfs with a square picture, it's three perf with a wider screen picture. And then when they when they showed it on TV, they cut the sides off, and it was sort of like, well, why did we bother? Why would we bother to do this if we weren't framing it for what we were going to be doing? And I don't, I don't know that it's ever been run of this correct ratio.
3: Did you have any trouble working on CSI? Because Rob Zombie gave a horror story about working on his CSI Miami episode. When you come into an established series like the CSIs, do you have a lot of freedom, or is it pretty uh, not much...
4: Particularly. Not particularly, not particularly, because I, I did my CSI because they asked me to do a Halloween episode. And um, I, was, I was pretty much left alone. Uh, But the thing about shows like that is that you have to adopt their style. And uh, the style of that show was that you had two or three cameras and they were constantly moving. And they had these montages that you did with people hitting um, mannequins with blood spatter and all that kind of thing. I mean, that was sort of part of their, their shtick. And I, I I enjoyed doing it because I got to work with Julie Adams and I had Bruce Dern in it and I, I I was you know I I enjoyed doing it. Um, but then the one of the producers of that show moved on to Hawaii Five O and asked me to do a Hawaii Five O Halloween episode a couple of years later, and I did that one and that turned out okay. And then I I sort of became a regular Hawaii Five O director um, again because learning the ropes of how the show is done and you know what they want and how, how they want it I mean you, you have to be prepared to give them what they want or else you shouldn't be doing the show it's not like you're going to go on and say well this is my episode and I'm going to fix it so that all my fans can tell that it's me uh, it's, it's, it's much more anonymous than that because all the episodes have to fit together they can't one, they, there can't be one that stands out as some sort of strange stylistic anomaly they, they, you've got to really you know go with the flow on those shows
3: do you ever have problems getting some of your regular cast in there like Bruce Dern or Robert Picardo or Dick Miller or the the, the people that always show up in a Joe Dante production? I, I, uh, I see you, you tend to put them in your TV work as well. Do, do you ever get – Well, I back? do.
4: I mean if there's, if there's a part for them. I mean the problem with TV is that if you do a bunch of episodes of a show, they tend to not be, like to use the same actors over again. So I, uh, on CSI, I use Bob Picardo, but if I had done another CSI episode, I probably couldn't have used him. Because the network says, no, oh, we ought to use them. Um, I mean, there, you you will in rare occasions you will see shows where actors come back, but for the most part, uh, they they like to have new faces. And so um, it, it's and, and then again, you've also got to be able to you, you got to be able to afford them uh, because the, the way these shows are done now, um, there's not a lot of money for cast, particularly you know, with day players and and people who are not recurring. And so unless you can get somebody with a name, some kind of a name that is worth paying a little bit extra money, uh, they don't want to spend that kind of money. They'd rather just get, like, in the Hawaii Five-O, they they obviously want to use a lot of local talent. And the problem, of course, is they've been out for five years and they've used up a lot of the local talent. And so e- either you're going to have to have people recurring or you're have to bring them from the mainland. And uh, that's a pretty expensive proposition. Well, same, no. thing when you're, same thing when you're working in Canada, by the way. You know, you usually you only get to bring a couple of people with you, uh, a couple of Americans, and everybody else has to be Canadian. So by the time I had done uh, the, the the amazing story, uh, the, um, the Night Visions, and then I did Masters of Horror, uh, I started to amass a group of people in Canada that I could go to for certain kind of parts, you know, cops and judges and, you know, things like that.
3: Well, speaking of Masters of Horror... I, I thought your, the two episodes of Master of Horror that you did were each, and I'm, this is not sucking up at all, the standout episode of each season. And I said this back when I reviewed them when they were new. How much of that was the script and how much of that was you? Because those episodes feel like Joe Dante through and through, and I mean the story and the direction.
4: Well, the screwfly solution feels like me because I'd been trying to get to make that as a feature for a number of years when I was back working for Roger Corman. Uh, but it was, you know, we, we, it was a rights problem and nobody, frankly, wanted to make it. And and then once I did get to make it <laughs> for Master's Bar and looked at it, I realized how what a boneheaded idea it would have been to make a feature out of it because it was so f***ing depressing. The idea of actually paying people to go see that, <laughs> come out feeling that way would be like suicide. So the, the the nice thing about Matches of Horror was that I got to do stuff I couldn't do anywhere else. I would never been, would have been able to do Homecoming uh, on commercial television. I certainly would never have got it made as a movie. But because of the deal that the Matches of Horror producers made with this, the talent, which was we don't have any money uh, and we don't have much time, but you can do whatever you want and we won't censor you, uh, provided you give us something exploitable. It was a deal that very few of us could pass up. And um that's why they were able to attract such uh, big names to that show because uh, you really felt like you were making your own movie.
3: Well, like w- with the masters of horror, especially homecoming, it's a very political story. And then, if you go back to something like Second Civil War, and that w- was that kind of you getting out your politics, or you just those kind of left wing stories happened to land in your lap? No,
4: that's, that's pretty much my politics, but I think that if you look back, even a picture like *Corona* has a lot of left-wing politics in it. It's—it's it's really the—the—the—the the, 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 the nice thing about that genre is that you can do a lot of stuff that would be considered preachy if you did it in a normal film. But if you, under the guise of genre, um, you can make a lot of points and you can make them somewhat more subtly. I mean, one thing that that homecoming is, is, is not subtle. <laughs> it's, it's really not subtle at all. It hits right over the head. And um, that was the mood I was in, and I thought that was what I wanted to say at the time. And so I, I feel like I, I, that was what I wanted to do, and they gave me a chance to do it. So I sent copies of it to all of the right-wing commentators that I could get addresses of, and not a single one ever mentioned it or responded or anything. I'm actually
3: surprised Ann Coulter didn't try to sue you, because that was so clearly Ann Coulter in that thing. I know.
4: I know. But uh, one thing these people don't have is any sense of humor. So that's right off the bat. And I I don't imagine that the idea of uh, somebody sending an unsolicited zombie movie (laughs) probably (laughs) made them rush to to their DVRs.
1: So it seems like television is a very different beast than movies, or at least was. Twin Peaks is considered the turning point. I mean, before that, you did have theatrical-esque direction on things like HBO's Ray Bradbury Theater. The early HBO episodes are very theatrically directed and whatnot. They didn't feel like TV, and you had some of those, usually for pay cable at that point. So you had that on pay cable, which had the, the ability to take chances. Twin Peaks in 1990, coming to ABC, is what is considered the turning point. I, re- I remember Time and Newsweek, and I've got all these Star Logs and Fangorias and stuff. At the time Twin Peaks came out, they all pointed out that movies have come to television. The style of movies have come to television. Then you had, you had David Lynch directing the two-hour pilot. He'd done some TV before that and a ton of commercials. So yes. he was already familiar with TV. Is it wrong to say that Twin Peaks was the, 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 the swinging point? TV started to see that theatrical style didn't need to, that, that theatrical style could
0: work in a television format. I don't know if it was, but honestly, I can't think of another show. So uh, <laughs> I think that, um, I don't know if it is definitely, but uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was, because it, it was the show that did have that whole episodic thing down. The quality was up there. It really, really had people tuning in like every week. And doing the whole, you know, hitting the water cooler the day afterwards, where we didn't really have a lot of that before. And we did start to get a lot of shows after that that were really, really huge for people to, like, watch it and then talk about a lot more and get a lot of word of mouth. Because this was, you know, pre-internet days, so a lot of shows lived and died on how much word of mouth got out about them. I I could see that, uh, you know,
2: being the case.
1: And the only thing I would argue with Twin Peaks being the turning point would be Miami Vice.
2: I was gonna say that. God damn it!
1: Miami Vice is shot in such a theatrical way, and they had the budget for it. They were a million to an episode in 1984. That is un. That's what NCIS is today. So that was a major budget, and you can't look at any Miami Vice episode and not say this was shot theatrically. Mm -hmm. So I would say arguably Miami Vice, but I think. the the fact why people go to Twin Peaks for that is Twin Peaks was was like the indie vibe whereas Miami Vice was a big budget Hollywood vibe does that make sense
2: I think it does Uh, and I definitely agree that um, Twin Peaks was one of the turning points because just going back I've recently rewatched it and it really does feel like a recent show like it really has that cinematic vibe to it and the lighting, the the actors, the performances, the the pacing, just the overall storytelling really feels a lot more like a movie than a lot of TV shows did back then. And yeah, I was I was gonna bring it up, uh, Miami Vice. I was gonna say like if Miami Vice was one of the other ones that were a turning point because that show felt so cinematic. It totally felt like one of those you know 80s neo noir action detective crime thrillers like. Certain episodes even almost had, like, an Abel Ferrara, Fear City sort of vibe to them. Well, Abel um, Ferrara did direct four episodes of Miami which Vice. Which makes sense. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I think definitely shows like like Twin Peaks, and whether people say it or not, I'd say definitely Miami Vice were the, uh, were the trailblazers for a, lo- a lot of the types of TV that we're seeing nowadays.
1: Okay, if those were the trailblazers, then what are the ones—why are there more movie directors and movie-style crews doing tv shows now than ever before do you think there has been a permanent shift that you know something like, like like an accord like according to jim or an ncis or a csi with them being so formulaic and not willing to really deviate from that formula do you think that is one of the ways tv is dying let's face it in a lot of cases it's the cable shows that are the ones that are really going cinematic, or like the Netflix originals or whatnot. The network TV shows are not going for that cinematic style very often. In fact, Miami Vice is almost kind of a, a, a Miami Vice and Twin Peaks are almost kind of bloopers on that, really, because they are the exception and not the rule. Do you think this is just one more example of how cable is is overtaking the network?
0: Oh yeah, cable is just kicking the network's ass because we we talked about this last week. The network when they try to do something edgy they'll have they'll they'll do it a little bit and then they'll back way off or they'll panic and and they'll just not go all in and mm-hmm. whereas the cable networks are are just doing shows like walking dead breaking bad uh, you know and then you have hbo doing true detective and they're they're pushing things in in a good way to making shows that are adult for adults yeah. instead of making shows that they want adults to watch but they're really safe for children. Yeah, this is absolutely a case of where, you know, the cable networks eventually are, I mean, it might be a while since 3, 6, and 10, or 3, 6, did the same thing last time, since NBC, ABC, and CBS, and Fox, because they have such a built-in fan base, and because you're going to have people that will not get cable for whatever reason, they're going to live on for a while, but their numbers are dwindling.
2: Yeah.
1: and And part of that is, I think, the fact that That people, your average person that watches a CSI or something like that or Hawaii Five O, they're not looking for that kind of style. I remember when the Night Stalker came out, the 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 reboot in like 2004 or whatever year it was. I didn't want to like it, and the first two episodes were god awful. So it it did start off really really bad. That show was shot so theatrically. It was shot like it was shot like a goddamn William Friedkin movie every week, and Mm. that really started to show. And guess what? No one watched it. I don't know if that was due to the style or because it was just kind of a bad time to have launched a Night Stalker reboot. But I look at that and I just see on network television, whenever they go to a theatrical style, it doesn't last very long. Cable, it seems to. Do you guys think that the days of like what Joe Dante was talking about, about how TV and movies are so different, and that you as the director have to almost confine yourself? Do you think those are coming to an end, or, or maybe that maybe Joe Dante has just been doing it for so long? Since I mean, hell, he directed Police Squad episodes back in 1982, so yeah. he's been he's been doing TV almost his entire career as well as movies. But do you think somebody like Scorsese, when he directed the two-hour pilot of Boardwalk Empire, is it strange that he was that his style was welcomed with open arms when maybe ten years prior he would have been confined to no this is what we, this is what we want and we don't we don't want you we just want you to call the shots do you think that is really going to change
2: it seems to be um, at least when it comes to places like HBO and, and cable networks not so much with uh, network stuff like I think the reason why the Night Stalker thing didn't really go over so well is because that's not really the audience
1: also as i pointed out the first two episodes were terrible
2: they yeah, really there, didn't find a, their feet
1: till the third episode
2: yeah so that that could be a problem and it's just a problem with uh, the audience itself like they were given something you know cinematic whereas they're they're used to well networky stuff is really the only example i can come up with Whereas I think now it's becoming very welcome for directors to come in and to do their style and to do more of a cinematic style. Like with Boardwalk Empire, like to me, it seems like an obvious choice to get somebody like Scorsese to do that. He's great with uh, the the gangster stuff. So they, they got him to do that.
1: For Boardwalk Empire, the only one I could have thought of to do a better pilot would have been Michael Mann.
2: Yeah. It's either either one of those would have been awesome to do that. And I think Scorsese was definitely a good choice. And I, I think that's that's something that we are seeing a lot more of and will see a lot more of because there's it's open to to be done now. You you weren't able to do that with TV back in the day. It used to be more of you'd see a lot a lot of the network type stuff, whereas now with, with cable being so big and Netflix you know the, the Netflix originals and HBO being so much bigger and and them wanting that more more of a cinematic style and having the ground uh the, not having the limitations on budget and censorship to to go off and do whatever they want which I think is why TV is just dominating furiously right now it's it's why shows like like Walking Dead are, are kicking so much ass because now TV is able to do what they weren't able to do before and and i think it's it's not only giving network television to run for its money but it's it sure as hell given movies to run for their money too
1: do you think certain genres translate better to certain tv genres translate better to that style than others like say you can see a theatrical quality coming into a horror and sci-fi series but it's less you know it's less easy to do on like er because in all honesty tarantino's style didn't fit er that episode Mm -hmm. feels weird because er is not it it doesn't work for that kind of style whereas like joe dante directing police squad that's like a marriage made in heaven you know abel ferrara on miami vice that is such a perfect fit do
2: you Mm -hmm. think that
1: the action horror sci-fi shows are, are different than say a sitcom or or a drama
0: styles uh, you definitely make a difference because I mean you have certain directors that really can do just about anything uh, you know action horror sci-fi drama but you have uh, the styles that they excel in and the like Tarantino is much better with uh, you know a lot of the crime drama stuff and doing E.R. was very weird but I at least I give them credit for Not trying to shoehorn in anything, being like, okay, direct this, do this in your style. And it may not have worked, but it was an experiment that they at least went ahead with. They didn't try to force him to do something that was outside of his style.
1: This is just a rumor right now, but the rumor is that Guillermo del Toro has been offered a chance to direct a Walking Dead episode next season. I don't think I can see del Toro's style working with the format of Walking Dead, though. Can you?
0: Um, I could I mean, I've seen pretty much all of his movies, and they have an element of weirdness to them, so maybe yeah. he'll you know i mean uh, maybe they have an episode in mind that is a little bit more head trippy or uh I don't know i mean i I think that he. I think that him doing a Walking Dead is is really cool. I think it's a great idea. I, I don't as long as they give him the chance and say, "Hey, do this in do this the way that you think will work out best," and then we'll see how that goes.
1: How identifiable when you do get a director, or in in one of the cases I'm going to bring up, even a writer, when how how invaluable is their style to the episode if they're not being handcuffed like on a CSI or Hawaii 50 to a style can you usually see a director style come through like like in like police squad yes those feel like joe dante his eerie indiana's the as i said in the interview with him the twilight zone he did even if i didn't see his name on it feels like joe dante in miami vice the episode viking bikers from hell written by John Millius and co-directed by John Millius, It's about, it's everything John Milius <laughs> en- encompassed into 44 minutes. I mean, it's about renegade biker gangs that want to die in a hail of fire so they can go to Valhalla and they see themselves <laughs> as Vikings and they've got huge guns and the whole thing is about how the police are ineffectual and codes of honor need to be brought back. And you go, God damn it, this is John Millius all the way through, isn't it?
2: All it needs is Valkyries.
1: <laughs> it's like, and it stars Reb freaking Brown.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Who is the guy that you get if you can't get Arnold?
1: Is it sometimes that the personality of the director or writer in this case is so strong that even when conforming to a TV format, it still bleeds through?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I had I had already talked about the, the Tales from the Crypt stuff where you can definitely tell that a certain director is, I mean, it, even if you don't look at the credits at the beginning. Uh, if you're familiar with their work, like even if I didn't know that like specifically Walter Hill directed the the episode that I was talking about, I think I would kind of know or at least assume like I would go, this is kind of a Walter Hillish style of, of lighting. this kind of this kind of looks a bit like the Warriors. I'm getting kind of a vibe of that. I, th- I think the the style definitely bleeds through when when their presence is just that strong.
1: Do you think it goes the opposite direction as well? For instance, like with Frank Darbaugh's The Mist, he hired the crew of the SHIELD to shoot the mist for him because he knew that they could work fast, they could work cheap, and they could get the job done. And in all honesty, once I found out about that, the mist is kind of shot in a shieldish kind of style, isn't it?
0: Yeah, um, it does kind of have a similar thing, especially, you know, once they're in the grocery store, it's a lot of A lot of uh, yelling and uh, (laughs) (laughs) and that's kind of I mean, I mean, I realize that's kind of down to basics, but a a lot of
1: handheld, a a lot of
0: a lot of handheld shots, a lot of, you know, close ups, a lot of sweeping back and forth between, you know, two parties. So, yeah, um, it it does kind of have a a good uh, shield vibe to it. It's just absolutely crazy
1: it's an ending straight out of the twilight zone which is why i'm kind of saying this is also something you see in a lot of movies like Mm -hmm. how i say it can kind of go both ways let's go back to 1969 planet of the apes planet of the apes that ending the last five minutes are so shocking that when you find out that that was written by rod serling it doesn't really surprise you does it because you kind of go (laughs) Yeah, this whole movie is basically a 90-minute Twilight Zone episode, isn't it? You know, so so can it go both ways? Cuz we've we're talking all night about movies influencing TV. What about TV influencing movies?
0: There are uh well look at how many uh how many zombie things we've had come along since The Walking Dead blew up, you know. And C-Nation also C-nation
1: can kiss my hairy yellow ass. <laughs>
0: Look, they had a tornado filled with zombies.
1: Exactly, they can kiss my hairy yellow <laughs> ass.
0: Oh my god! You, you know what? It is it Z Nation is the fun version of The Walking Dead. Like, like <sighs> I, I love never the Walking. Gonna get
1: through. I'm never going to get through to you, am I?
0: I am not <laughs> trying to say that it is great television. I'm just saying that it is it is ridiculous zombie like, all right, let's do
2: all the craziest shit we can do with zombies in a mm. TV show. So is know? Z Nation more of like sort of a Bruno Matai zombie movie kind of thing?
1: It's the asylum doing a zombie TV show for sci fi. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I'm going to avoid
0: that. I think you probably would would laugh at it. You would you would get some enjoyment out of it. Because Possibly.
2: Like Maybe give it a, give it a watch episode or two.
0: Yeah don't don't listen to old man Hadley TV influences movies in the biggest way as far as stardom like how many actors have gotten their their start in television and have blown up and now are major movie stars yeah you know, Clooney freaking uh what's his name from uh uh from Breaking Bad both of them are uh are are, are you know Aaron Aaron, Aaron, Aaron what's his Aaron Paul, and then and then the big one, um, the Brian Cranston. Thank you, you know, from Malcolm in the Middle. From Malcolm in the Middle, right? Well, that's the thing. It showed how you know Malcolm in the Middle wasn't you know like they uh, they they tried with um, Frankie Muniz, but uh, his his uh, his movie career didn't take off too much.
2: I'd say TV definitely influences movies and I think it has for a long time. I mean, on our episode on whether the X-Files should come back or not, we talked about was the Outer Limits totally influencing Terminator, at least like storyline-wise and definitely the the future war opening from the episode uh the Outer Soldier. Limits episode of Soldier totally looks like terminator so i i think it's been influenced tv has definitely been, been influencing movies for a long time and not only that actors tend to get their breaks in tv and become huge stars i mean whoever thought the dad from malcolm in the middle would become such a huge movie star you know this guy that was doing little bit spots on seinfeld and voicing power rangers monsters became this huge hit with breaking bad and now he's you know he's in a-list movies now, and, and so many actors have gotten their start from that, so w- without a shadow of a doubt, TV definitely influences film.
1: I'm, I'm forced to agree. I think in ways people don't understand, for instance like, like even the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that is very much, each of these movies being spun off of the other, that's a TV idea, yeah. you know? The sequels that always end on a cliffhanger, and then the next one picks up right where that one left off, that's a TV mm-hmm. idea. So I think TV influences the movies more than most people realize. A lot of your biggest movie directors out there started in TV. You, you've got so many major mainstream movie directors that started off doing television. Yeah. So I think too many people discount TV. And yes, it has changed, as we pointed out last week. But I, I think people seem to freak out whenever they, oh my God, this big name movie director is doing a TV show. What happened to their career? That's gone away. I don't think that people ask that question anymore. It's more like, this is so cool that this big name movie director is doing this TV show.
0: I, I don't think that there's any reason why they shouldn't. Uh, it kind of gives them flexibility to do something in a much shorter span of time. And in, sometimes they get a, a good bit of creative freedom over it. And if their name is big enough, uh, it helps to promote the show forward if it's you know a good enough show. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it.
2: I love it when directors uh, do TV shows and big name movie directors move into TV. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons why Twilight Zone is going to be one of my favorite shows forever, because it's just it's such a perfect example of how well that can work when you do it right, especially with an anthology show, because every episode is going to have its own feel, because most every episode is directed by this a new director that comes along and, and gives it its own spin. I think it's it's awesome and I want to see more of it and I want it to keep happening.
1: A lot of people like I said from that that Mel Gibson quote, people saw TV as sort of the ghetto, you know, movies are where you really go, you know. Th- there's that old Tommy Chong when Cheech Marin wanted to do Get Out of My Room as a home video. Tommy Chong saw that as quote a step backwards in our career. Mm. That you know like doing doing videos, we're in movies now. We don't do videos. We don't do TV. I don't think it's seen as a step backwards anymore. And I think sooner or later, it's going to start overtaking movies because you've got you've got you've got more people that are willing to shell out eight hours for a season of True Detective than they are for a couple of hours for a new Christopher Nolan movie at this
2: point. Yeah. Oh, man, I I, I can tell you which one I'd rather watch. I would definitely I'd rather rewatch all of True Detective than any of the Batman movies.
1: All right, Cecil, since uh, you have been relegated to the dregs of public access television, you've been kicked there. Where can people find you?
0: You can find me at GoodBandFlicks.com as well as GeekJuiceMedia.com.
1: Peter, I, I, I need you to take over his channel and turn it into a soap opera network. Where can you be found?
2: Quick, change the channel to Twitter where you can follow me at Zinematica. Facebook, The Cinemasochist, YouTube, The Cinemasochist, and pretty much might as well be 1201beyond.com once all the, the web designing stuff is through.
1: We are currently in the process of redesigning the website, and then Peter's stuff will be there once once everything is all said and done. So mm. it's literally just in a build mode at this point. The site still yeah. works because you can go to 1201beyond.com, click on some links and order a t-shirt or something like that, or you can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com.